and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Darden Smith is a Texas-born singer-songwriter who just released his first book. The Habit of Noticing is an honest and poetic journey through Darden's life as an artist, what he's learned so far, and the many interesting people that have crossed his path. His writings are artfully juxtaposed with his own drawings and photographs. Reading the book while listening to Darden's voice and the musical score that accompanies it was really powerful and moving for me. His vulnerability is evident and appreciated, and his struggles relatable. Sitting down to talk in person, we spoke about his life as an artist and how he got to where he is today, along with many other questions. How do you gain access to something bigger than yourself and with more depth? What is it like to write songs with kids, homeless teenagers, and soldiers? How do you embrace everything, even the parts of life that are hard? Have a listen and see if we found any answers. And please have a look or listen to his book. I really, really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Here is Darden. Well, thanks, Darden, for being on my show. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so you just released a book, The Habit of Noticing, Using Creativity to Make a Life and a Living. Yes. Um, and I just finished reading it, and it's, wow, it's just really, really powerful. It really moved me. But I'm just wondering, maybe if before we get started, you could just share a little bit about yourself for people that maybe aren't familiar yeah, with you. Yeah, uh, singer-songwriter, uh, Texan. Grew up in Texas. I uh, was born in Brenham, Texas. Grew up in the country, uh, Brenham, Texas. Uh, so live on a farm-ish kind of thing. Uh, cows and chickens and all that stuff. And I uh, wrote my first. So I started playing guitar when I was nine, and then I wrote my first song at ten. I was ten years old, and the reason I wrote my first song is I was taking guitar lessons from uh, a woman. And Austin, she was a 17-year-old Filipino girl. She'd been adopted by the choir teacher. She was just the most gorgeous thing in town. And, yeah. and just, I was 10, so I was, of course, I was <laughs> massively in love with her. And uh, But it was great. The uh, She taught me the entire uh, Neil Young, After the Gold Rush and Harvest yeah. album. So we had, she had those song books. And I remember sitting in her bedroom, because also the guitar lessons were in her bedroom which okay. is like massively cool and, uh, <laughs> for a 10 year old yeah for a 10 year old I thought I had a future there and uh, anyway um, you know so I'm looking at the picture and in the, the after the Gold Rush album there's a picture of Neil Young and he's reclining on this couch it's a very famous picture he's reclining on this couch in this dressing room looking place and 
Um, he just looks all strung out, you know, and long hair and it's like, you know, it's patches on his jeans, like the ultimate cool, the yeah. ultimate like foreign object for a farm kid from Burnham, Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, who's that? And she goes, well, that's Neil Young. That's who wrote the songs. And I was like, he wrote the songs, that guy. And I was like, well, if he can write songs, can I write a song? And she goes, yeah. I said, why do you write a song? She said, well, it's just poetry put to music. And I already knew how to write poetry. It was just this thing that I could do. I could, I could write these long multiverse like couplets when I was a kid, you know, basically Mary had a little lamb, fleeces as snow, Mary everywhere, you know, it's that, that rhythm. Yeah, yeah. I could just do it and they could be 15, 20 verses and I could just do it over and over and I could remember them. And I went, Oh great. Well, well, I think I'll do one tonight. Is that okay? And she goes, yeah. And I went home and I wrote this song about a girl that had just dumped me, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I loved it. So I wrote like one song a year through the fourth grade and then the fifth grade, uh, the eighth grade, my family moved into the suburbs of Houston and I was basically a Martian landing in this, mm. you know, farm kid landed in this sort of planned community thing in the condo across the street from a golf course. Wow. And it was so weird. I just uh, retreated into my bedroom and I was already into songs. My brother had brought home Viva Terlingua, Jerry Jeff Walker's Viva Terlingua mm-hmm. record. And I had been with some cousins hauling hay that summer in Wimberley. And they had Willie Nelson's Phases and Stages and Shotgun Willie. And those records, it was just so cool. And uh, so I was already into what a song was and what Jerry Jeff Walker and what the Texas music scene was all about. So I got way into that. And uh, I just kind of retreated into songs all during, you know, that sort of eighth grade year and then uh, into high school. And along with doing all the normal stuff that high school kids, songs were this secret way for me to tell a story, tell a secret, really. Yeah. And, uh, but I do remember, I think that, uh, as a kid, I remember being, there's a story in the book called Hay Dust. And it was this time where I was in the hayloft of our barn. It was in October and it was the hay season, you know. And so I just remember looking out in the afternoon, the sun was going down. So it could have been November because the sun was coming through these trees with no leaves on them, you know. And just creating this interesting beautiful light in this low sort of low land and i just remember being really moved by this light i just remember walking back to the house going what is that feeling that i'm feeling and what is this thing because it's not me i'm a part of it but i'm not connected to it somehow you witnessed it yeah i witnessed it and um i think that was the first time i didn't even know what art was i I had no idea what art was because my family wasn't an art family Mm-hmm. But I think that was the first time I pinpoint that as this first time that I experienced the other. And what songs did for me was it allowed me to access the other. And it also, I was really into drugs and alcohol in high school. I was mm-hmm. really a, very much a, that kid. And I think it was not so much that I loved drugs and alcohol. I did. But I especially loved being a part of, I could connect with the other I think that's what I was seeking was this sort of out out of body, out of mind, larger experience than what I could access in my sort of day-to-day life. As I've gotten older, I've realized that songs are much, much easier on your body than drugs and alcohol are. But but, uh, so, yeah, then I just wrote songs. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell talks about that 10,000 hours thing. You know, I got a lot of my 10,000 hours in before I ever got out of high school. Mm. Wow. And I explored, you know, I also got in a lot of trouble and I got, you know, things like I got kicked out of school for singing a song at a, you know, like a class, uh, like a school meeting and stuff, which was really great because 
I discovered like, oh, rock and roll is really cool. You know, songs are really cool. You can get a lot of great attention. And then I moved to Austin and just started going. I didn't know anything about music. I didn't meet a professional musician or artist until I was about 19. Mm. And just was kind of operating in a bubble. But I got going on the music world and, and just wanted to make records. And that was kind of all I wanted to do until about 1987 or 88, uh, no, 89. I, I started exploring some other like I, I got into art when I was in college and was, you know paintings and stuff not paint not doing the painting just you know because I I told myself when I was ten that I couldn't draw you know there's yeah a, I was going to ask you about that story in there's the a story too. in there but um, I had these friends who did theater and they were art theater dance theater really I was sitting around at lunch with them one day I said yeah I'd like to do some theater sometime and they said really I said yeah and they said great um, yeah let's do it <laughs> and I was like oh yeah yeah whatever and they were serious so I wound up scoring. Uh, three full evening dance works. Wow. And, and, you know, in the 89, 92, 81, 89, 91, and 93. Or I think those were the years. Anyway, and I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about art. Dance. I knew nothing about dance. I had to go see dance to go like, oh, wow. And, you know, the first dance I ever went to was Bill T. Jones. And I was like, oh, wow. The rules are there's no rules. Yeah. That's no, there's no rules. Awesome. There's no words either, which was fantastic. So I taught myself to write music without words. I learned to sequence on the computers. It was all done on sequ- I learned to play the piano to do these dance works. I learned to sequence. Uh, so it was computer, early computers. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was great. But there was this other kind of other thing that I did, not the straight-ahead songwriter stuff. And that, that got me further out and got me over a lot of fear hmm. about music. And, and But the, the real crux, the real the key sort of evolution of all that. I was still making records and all that stuff and, you know, had whatever I was on Columbia records and tour and all that stuff. Then I got commissioned to do, I got commissioned to do a symphony by the Austin symphony. So I'm the first artist, first Austin musician ever could ever commissioned by the Austin symphony to do mm-hmm. a piece. And I completely talked my way into the gig, completely bluffed my way in, yeah. which was great. Uh, I don't read music. So mm-hmm. as soon you know, Peter Bay was totally cool with it though. He's like, Yeah, no problem. He listened to the, the music I'd done for dance. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, we'll make it work. And uh what was great was that this this um two things happened. One, we finished the piece, it got done, which is great, and half the audience hated it, half of them loved it, which was pretty good. Yeah. And um the arranger that we worked with is a guy named Jeff Tyzik out of Rochester. At one point I turned in all this music and he goes, Well, Darden, it's kinda of boring, you know. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. He goes, because I'd written a story about what the piece was on and a piece was on migration. And uh, I'd written this story and he goes, I believe, he goes, when I listen to your records, I believe them. When I read this story that you've written, I believe it. When I listen to the music that you wrote for the symphony, I don't believe it. He goes, you're not Mozart. Don't try to be Mozart. Be yourself. You're a songwriter. Write songs. Write a song. We'll make it sound like a symphony. And what that was, was him saying, be yourself, yeah. be yourself, collaborate with people, be yourself. Immediately, I was a week late in turning this thing in. And I just remember throwing away about two thirds of it, writing a really, really simple song that was the crux of this story that I'd written. And over the course of a day or a day and a half, rewriting the whole thing. And we turned it into this thing. And that taught me like, be yourself. You don't have, don't impersonate people. 
be yourself. Yeah. And, and that was this key moment of me. And then I remember just like standing back in the middle of this performance of this symphony, standing on the side of the stage. I get emotional now just think about it, but crying, just mm. bursting into tears because this, this thing I'd done mm. was bigger than me. And it came from somewhere else. Like, I don't know where this, I don't know anything about symphonies, but I can touch this bigger object, which is the same thing that I think when I was a kid, I saw, it's the same thing I was wanting to do with drugs and alcohol. It's the same thing that songs have always done. It's this touching this bigger thing. And then, yeah, so I just got going on that and um, then just kept doing music. I've done some, uh, I did a thing called Marathon back about, I don't know, 10 years ago, which was a, a story, a song cycle. It's a song cycle, a theater thing. That was the last sort of big wacky project I ever I did before writing this book and getting the guts to have an art show. So, yeah, you just had your art show at Bale at Allen Gallery. Yeah, first time I've ever done that. So, yeah, what was that like? Um, Nerve wracking. Working with flatbed and making turning. Uh, your, ner- your uh, flatbed was into- amazing. Well, you know, the way this whole show came about was I, I, this book that you know the habit of noticing. It's these stories, and the book itself was kind of an accident. I wanted to write a book, but I didn't know how to write a book, so I just started writing stories. And then I took the stories down to DJ Stout at Pentagram, mm-hmm. and he, he DJ's done my last three records. Oh. And uh, so everything, the, the last record I put out was called Everything, and, and uh, when I made that record, I took the artwork in, you know, I took you know, the music in, and we were talking about what the package was going to be. And I said... I don't know what you want to do for the design, but here's some images that I've been working on, just drawing and photographs while I was writing and recording these songs. This is kind of what I did. So whatever you're going to do, just so you know where I'm coming from, you know, I, I wasn't trying to go, Hey, I want you to use my stuff on the artwork. Cause I've never shown anybody my work. Yeah. And he looks at it and he goes, why don't we just use that? Why don't we just make it all your stuff? And I was like, are you crazy? Like, I, I, no, uh, Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. And I'd never done that, so that was terrifying. And then, I, I, then as I was working on the book, I thought, oh, maybe I'll put a few of these images in there. And DJ encouraged me to do that. He's, mm. DJ's actually been a big influence on me yeah. to be a little bolder, step out there and show people my stuff. So then when I went to do the, the book, I started putting images around the stories. And then when the book was coming out, I knew the book was coming out, I went over to Bale Allen, who I've known for a long time, at 25, 30 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I've known Bale since uh, we were kids, you know. And uh, uh, So I just said, hey, man, can you can you look at these drawings and these photographs? Are they are they any good? You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. what do you think? And he said, well, I think November. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, go over to Flatbed, show them to Catherine, and let me know what she says. And, and so working with Catherine at Flatbed and, and Alex over there, uh, who did the printing, I'm spacing out Alex's last name. She's a fantastic printer. Um, was amazing because they took, they were able to see kind of what I'd done and make it, once again, make it into something larger. So make it into something with more depth and, and put it on the, um, and make it into something that I could never do on my own. Yeah. You know? So I love collaborating with people like that because, uh, you know, I got my thing, but I want to, collaborate with an artist who can make it bigger realize it in a different yeah, way yeah yeah see it in a different way yeah i want to just back up a little bit to kind of something you touched on when you started sharing your that was a lot i'm sorry I'm sorry i, I talked no. on and on there no i i appreciate it <laughs> um 
just something that you talk about in your TED talk and you talk about in your book. It's like this idea of being scared of being ourselves and limiting ourselves or fearing our gift. Fearing your gift. Yeah. Well, I think that we all are, uh, everyone is more capable than we think we are. And, and, uh, fear is this, uh, the great crusher, not only for artists, but for every human being, you know, we all experience fear around something. And sometimes it's a really old, uh, ingrained fear. Sometimes the fear was put on us by something else, mm-hmm. but you don't know. So, and especially around your gift and I think everyone is gifted at something. And I think that we, as, uh, we're afraid of that gift because to do that gift, most of us don't find our gift until we're an adult. And most of us, if we really embrace that gift, it's going to mean that we're probably going to have to make some changes <laughs> yeah. in our pattern or in our structure. Because um, the one of the things about being an adult is you get family, you get uh, people counting on you, you get bills, you get debt, you get all the, and you also get a story about yourself. You get an ego. Mm-hmm. And quite often your gift, is it doesn't always line up with your, with your bills. <laughs> it doesn't always line up with your commitments. Yeah. And in order to change that, and also the story that you've been telling yourself about who I am. And if you really embrace your gift, it, it might mean that you're going to have to shift. And you're going to have to do a different thing. And so there's this fear of failure. There's this fear of being stupid, looking stupid. There's this fear of, of uh, it not working. There's this fear of, I mean, in many artists, there's the fear of, oh, my God, it's going to work. Fear there's of success. Fear, yeah. fear of success. And so I think there's just a lot of fear. Mm. And, then, and then, But fear in your gift is, I think, one of the biggest sadnesses in the world because it's like the world does, the world needs you. I mean, the world needs us to be ourselves. And the world needs us to be, uh, and you could call it fully realized or whatever it is. But actually, you know, you think about those people that everyone, everyone knows someone who's fully realized. You know, it's like they're they're rocking. What they're doing, they're rocking, and we we win when they're rocking. We win. You know. Yeah. Like you go see Bruce Springsteen. You know, if you're a Springsteen fan, go see those fifty thousand people in a stadium. You're looking at a fully, pretty fully realized human being. You know, Springsteen. He's he's got this thing. He's got this charisma. Songs. He's not a great singer. You know, he has a voice, but he's not like Sinatra. The band is Springsteen. They play Springsteen music. I mean, they're great, but they that's what they do. But he's got something that we all are drawn to. We win. We win. Yeah, Springsteen makes some money, but we win by Springsteen being realized. Mm-hmm. So the world needs that. And I think that getting over that, you know, the, I said, I talked about the symphony that helped me see that like, I mean, this guy walked up to me, he was in the percussion section. He's an older guy. He's about 70 years old. I was, I was young. I was like 40, 40 when I did that. And, uh, he said to me, he goes, how does it feel to be a musician now? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, now you're a musician before you were just a songwriter. Hmm. I was like, Wow. Awesome. I'd never thought of myself as a musician. I thought of myself as a songwriter. So blowing the doors off your label even is is beneficial. And then that TED that the the fear in your gift came from a TED talk I did. And um I mean I, I have this thing I do this thing called songwriting with soldiers yeah. where we put together retreats and bring together professional songwriters with wounded soldiers. 
and write these songs based on their stories. It's an amazing, it's like the most beautiful, pure work I've ever done. Mm. It's music without the music business. Mm. It's, it's story without any expectation of an outcome, which is perfect. You know, it's like, and it's healing. It, it's awesome. Well, there's the healing quality to it too, for both sides. There's a transformational more than healing. It's transformational, mm. which is a big difference. And I'm not, I'm not a healer. I'm a songwriter and artist, you know, but what's interesting is, is that I spend a lot of time not telling people about that kind of work I do. Because I've been doing it, I'd been doing other kind of work similar to that before I did songwriting with soldiers, and it's the ability to sit down with someone and listen to their story and and help move their trauma through the act of collaborative songwriting. And I got way into this back, like maybe ten, twelve years ago, long before songwriting with soldiers. And I wouldn't tell anybody about this, even though I knew I had a gift for it mm-hmm. and I had a thing that I could do, and uh, I loved it. I loved it. But I wouldn't tell anybody because my ego said, oh, no, you're a touring artist and you're a singer-songwriter and you're supposed to be this. And that's what people know you as and that's where your money comes from and that's where your ego stroke comes from. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you don't want to dilute the brand. I don't want to dilute that. I don't want to dilute the brand. That's right. And then I had a manager told me, he says, no, what you need to do is embrace everything. Put your arms around everything. Mm. Make it all you. And it just helped me kind of, that, that statement helped me a lot. But also just realizing that by embracing that gift that a that makes me different unique but it also allows me to really do something in the world with this these gifts that i have my gifts aren't your gifts your gifts are different than mine so it's up to me to take care of feeding and and using my gifts because i think it like the world needs it yeah and you also did a did the uh, Be an Artist program with kids, Yeah, that, right? well, that's where it all started. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this kind of work started because as an artist, a songwriter, a musician, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, I got really lucky. I was moderately successful early in my career. Got a record deal really early, uh, 26, uh, with Epic Records. I was on Columbia Records. At one point, I had two record deals at the same time. I had a record deal on Chrysalis and Columbia at the same time. It was bizarre. Hmm. And uh, a blast. But then it all went away. It all fell apart. And I was really uh, broke. <laughs> and, yeah. and just like I had two Christmases in a row where I didn't have enough money to really treat my family the way I wanted to treat them. Hmm. And I had kids and everything, and, and I just was looking around for something to do. And, and I I had two children at that point, uh, two children, young children. And I'd started, and I went to my daughter's preschool, and they asked me to sing kids' songs. And I, I hate kids' music. I just don't, it was like, it was before all the cool kids' music was out. Yeah. It, was, it was just nothing. And I went, well, I can't really do that. I could write a song, you know. And so I went and wrote a song with these preschool kids, and it was a blast. And they kept writing it over the course of the next week. They would be on the playground writing new verses to the songs. These preschool kids on the swing set writing new verses. Hmm. And I was like, wow, there's something here. You know, this is cool. The song lives beyond me. And then I've been thinking about and talking with my kids about creativity. It's not something that they learn in arts class. Art class, unfortunately, art class in public schools, at least in Texas, it's kind of like a craft and it's got like a, a bit of a 45 minutes of babysitting. Yeah. You know, it's not really, they're not really talking about creativity. Keep them busy or something. They're talking yeah. about how to glue things together, but that's not real creativity. And, uh, and, and what I had seen, I mean, there, I could be wrong, but 
so I was thinking about how can I, how can I talk about creativity and maybe include some of the songwriting thing and da, 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 da. And so I started, I developed this thing called the be an artist program where I would go around to schools, talk about creativity and music, but how you don't have to be a musician. You can be whatever you like. You can, what, what do you love? So the, the tenets of the be an artist program were artistic thinking comes from attention, intention, and doing what you love. So where's your attention? And pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. And then what is your intention? And it's like a shooting a bow and arrow. You pull the bow back, that's attention. You, and the word tension is in attention. You know? yeah. The attention and then the intention is you aim at the target. You'll never hit the target if you don't aim at it, unless it's an accident. But if you aim at the target, you just might hit the target. So first you pull the bow back, because you can aim at the target all you want. But if you don't pull the bow back, the arrow's not going to go there. You pull the arrow back, you aim at the target, and the more you do it, the better you get. And if you can measure up, you put attention with intention, and that's a real strength. Hmm. That's a real strength. And then, what do you love? So where do you lose track of time? What, do you, what would you do? What, 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 what do you do when you just want to do anything you want? Well, as a kid, what does a kid like to do? It's pretty free and open and wild. Well, if you kind of move forward a couple of decades, you can probably get paid to do that. Mm-hmm. You like to light firecrackers? Awesome. There's people in movies that blow things up. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you like to, you know, you like to play army? Go be an army guy. You know, mm-hmm. you like to uh, dress dolls? Cool. There's people that make clothes for a living. You like to play video games? Awesome. Adults make video games. You can do it. Yeah. But you have to pay attention, have an intention, and marry that with what you love, and boom, you have a full life. I did that, and that taught me how to write songs with groups of people, like 30, 40 people at one time. And then from that, I got asked to do some work at a homeless shelter in Newark, New Jersey, mm. uh, a place called Covenant House, where I was going in. And on the theory that I was going to do the Be an Artist program with these homeless kids, and what it, came, what it transformed into was going there and doing collaborative songwriting with groups of homeless teenagers and then the, after the group writing one or two would come up and go hey i've got an idea about a song and that was the first place i experienced trauma transfer mm. through collaboration where at the end of a song they would feel fantastic and i'd feel like i'd been hit by a truck i mean i was i was hearing and i was meeting all the kids but i was also hearing the stories of of being homeless and what it what leads someone to being homeless as a teenager you know it's pretty it was, I'd never experienced that, and I also learned the power of difference, because I'm a I was a forty you know year old in my I was in my forties or late forties Texan that guy like I'd never been homeless I, I, and I would be really clear with them like they would say hey man can you rap I'm like look at me do you really want me to rap and they go no 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 don't rap you know <laughs> like, but it's like I, I'm not that I'm I'm me you be you I'll be me we'll come together we'll make something that's impossible to make had we both not sitting been sitting here in this room. Through that power of difference, it, it eliminates a lot of competition. It eliminates a lot of just preconceived, like, oh, i got to be this. You're more likely, you're more actually more able to be yourself, you know, sometimes if you're someone who's very different mm-hmm. in a collaborative thing. So that led to some conflict resolution work with gangs, mm. Israeli-Palestinian groups, couples. <laughs> I did some, collabor- some collaboration work with conflict resolution with couples, companies, it was just all this thing. I did like I like saying yes to stuff, you know. I like saying yes and using songwriting, and that led me to meeting a soldier at Landstuhl Air Base in Germany, where I'm going in a couple of weeks actually. Mm. And uh, and um, so we 
I got in there and, and that was the first time I went, oh, wow. And that was the first time I'd ever really talked to a, a person in uniform, you know. And I was like, oh, I wonder if all this will, all this could come together in this project. What would happen if I sat down with a soldier so different than me? And it changed my life in a really amazing way. It's like it really, really has changed me. And, and it's, um, it's a powerful, powerful project. I know. It seems like you're very open to being changed. I don't know if I see that in everyone. Well, I have this real fascination with paying my bills. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really. It's like I like paying my bills. And I also like uh, waking up every day and go, ah, right, you're an artist. <laughs> yeah. You're a songwriter. How are you going to make this work? I mean, I got two kids. I got two stepkids. I got like, I got to make it happen. Like I said, I was, I was moderately successful early in my life. I never was huge. I, I did live on royalties for a number of years, which is a pretty fascinating thing. And I've been broke too, man. I've been all the way down. And yeah. having money is a lot cooler than not having money. But there's no plan B, right? I mean, not really. There's a series of plan A's, but there, I don't really have like you know. I mean, there's a story in the book. No plan B. It's like yeah. basically, if you have a plan B as an artist, if you have a plan B, you'll use it because plan A is going to be hard. Nothing really cool ever came from uh, something being just a piece of cake or be having some existential crisis with it. You know, it's it's hard. And uh, but that's where the joy is as well. It's not like everything has to be a struggle, but also uh, it's just hard to make a living as an artist. But it's the coolest, you know. And uh, so I'm really committed to that. I'm really committed to having my income come from my creativity. Hmm. And That's uh, a debate, though, in the kind of, I feel like, the artistic world is whether which side is better. I guess it depends on the person. But some people know, do feel like they don't want to put it all on their creativity because they feel like that somehow taints it if it's has to be What a motivated. drag. Yeah. What a drag. Yeah. <laughs> what a drag. <laughs> no, go for it. Yeah. Go for it. It's the best. That first dance piece, dance theater piece I did was called Nine Chains to the Moon. I did it with a dance company here called Johnson Long. That got me into this whole thing. But um, it was based on the writings of Buckminster Fuller. And I found this book in the UT library that uh, was called Nine Chains to the Moon. And uh, so we based the work around that. But we had to go have a meeting uh, with the Buckminster Fuller family to get mm. their blessing. So we had this meeting in L.A. with Allegra Fuller, who was the head of the dance department at UCLA at the time. And her husband was a uh, documentary filmmaker. And we had this conversation. They gave us like they gave us their go ahead in about five minutes. But then we had this long conversation about the meaning of art and the meaning of artists and the role of the artist and all this stuff. And we're sitting there trying to be very intelligent with these really fantastic older artists trying to think we're holding our own and allegra at one point she's i'll never forget this she was kind of dozing off in the middle of this conversation and she like sat up in her chair and she's this beautiful woman she had gray hair and beautiful blue eyes and she's probably 75 or at the time 70 75 and, and she sat up and she looked at she goes you know kids you know the meaning of being a working artist and we were like somebody who works and she goes no somebody who works for 30 or 40 years and it's like, whoa. She goes, yeah, you have a body of work. She goes, and if you want to be a working artist, you better play the game. And the game is, if you're a painter, you have to have paint. You have to have a place to paint. If you've got a family, you better have a roof over their head. You've got to feed your kids. You have to feed yourself. You better sell some paintings. Yeah. <laughs> you better sell some paintings. And you can be as weird as you want. Do all the weird stuff you want. In the meantime... Make sure that you're selling a painting every now and then. 
make sure that you're doing something. And it's, it's still based on your creativity. And she says, and she said, I'm not talking about, you know, being some kind of hooker. She said, I'm just talking about paying attention, making sure you have money. It takes money. Get a patron. That's the game. The game. Play a game. It's all a game. Mm-hmm. Never forgot that. Wow. It was like before and after for me. That moment mm. was key to me and going, just play a game. Get the game. And that's not being about being false. It's about how can I get someone, how can I fund this thing? How can I fund it? Because I know what I want to do. There's lots of resources out there. So changing is is key. Keeping moving. Know where you come from and know how you can change and adapt. Say yes. Also, I get bored really quick. But every seven years, there's a part in my book called The Seven-Year Wave. I think every seven years, every artist has to completely reinvent themselves. And the problem is you get successful, and then you're afraid to reinvent because you're afraid you'll lose everything. And those, yeah. are, those are the people that start doing boring work. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to apologize um, for saying that. Yeah. How does it feel putting out this book? Does it feel vulnerable? Does it feel completely natural? Well, putting a book out, you know, writing a book is a, is a lot more work than I thought it was. Like, holy cow, you know? And then marrying up words, you know, printed word with images is is, uh, is a lot of work, too. It's a bunch of work. So it feels amazing to put have a book out. It's very concrete, having a book. It's a little more concrete than a song, you know, mm. or an album. It lasts in a different... I think it la- they last in a different way. Um so it feels it does feel very vulnerable because uh, you're putting it out there, but I'm kind of used to being kind of open and exposed like that from making records. Yeah, and you you learn early on that some people just aren't going to like it. Doesn't matter what you do, they're just not going to like it. And some people you never know who's going to like it and who's not. So you just put it out there, and but but that's not the point anymore for me. I put it out there because I want to put it out there, and I use these kind of projects. I learned with the dance project, the symphony marathon and now this book that every seven or eight years i get really restless and i need a big uh, unwieldy kind of project to blast me into the next 10 years Mm. and that blasts me into the next so i try to pick something i've never done before and really go for it and put it all into and it's they're usually they usually have three characteristics one they're very time consuming Mm. these projects b these projects are very expensive, yeah. <laughs> you know, and B, they don't make much money <laughs> in the beginning mm-hmm. and they inform and launch me into my next sort of period of doing things and working. And as long as I, I just believe that I'm going to be okay, I'm all right. I'm going to be all right. You know, and I'm going to, if I do, I think it's my responsibility as an artist to be working and to do my work in as best as I can do as do as good as I can and be thinking all the time what could I be doing and how could I be doing it better and and honing that whether it's songs whether it's songwriting with soldiers whether it's a book whether it's this or that what can I do and what can I do better in that and learning getting better at saying no to things like I'm not going to do that anymore I don't want to do that you know whatever but if I do that and I pay attention to the business part of it as far as funding it, keeping it moving, keeping the wheels greased, the world will take care of me. It'll, it'll, I'll, get, I'll make the money. I'll eat. You know, I, I haven't gone without a meal in a long time. You know, it's not that I'm rich, but 
And I think that most of the artists that I know that, that are working for this 25, 30 year period, they're the same way. They just believe. They have this ridiculous belief that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be all right. It's going to work out. I'm not sure how, but it's going to work out. And it's, uh, you just go, just go for it. And you have to make sure that you're paying attention to everything, but you just go. Is that about the habit of noticing, paying attention to everything? I think the habit of noticing comes in just because I, I just realized the reason the book is called, originally the book was called something else and the publisher said I couldn't use that title, which oh. I was really, really pissed off at. Yeah. Because I'd been working with that title for uh, over four years. I said I couldn't use the title. I was so irritated. And so I went, okay, but I'm not going to say no. I'm not a publisher. What do I know? And so I spent a, a weekend looking at the book and just trying to go, okay, where's the title? Where's the title? And I went, the habit of noticing. There it is. That's even. It's an even better title. Hmm. It was even better. <laughs> and I wrote that piece five years ago. I wrote the habit of noticing is one of the first things I wrote for the book. And um, it was like, I, and I think the habit of getting in the habit of noticing is what is essential to being an, actually being an artist. You have to first off just get in the habit of seeing things and noticing. And it's not only visually seeing; it's hearing, listening, and tasting, and using your senses. Just get up, and it's like if you are a swimmer, like I swim. So if you swim, well, you got to like, you, know, you got to stretch. You got to stand up and do it. If you cook, it's like you got to like know what your know what garlic does. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to get in the habit of doing it. But wake up and think, okay, what am I going to notice today? Because the work is around you. The 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 input that you need to do the work. There's no shortage of that if you're paying attention. If you're not paying attention and you're asleep, which is what most people are, asleep, I think, well, then you miss it. So get in the habit. Do you really want to do this? If you really want to do it, make it a habit. And uh, so being in the habit of notice, I think that's our job as artists is to, is to pursue that and make that our day. To notice and process and... And then, and, and, then and then have output, create and have output, yeah. you know, but you got to have input before you have output output without input, just eventually you're empty and you got to breathe in, you know, it's breathing in, breathing out. So you got to, you got to take things in, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't operate. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Even if you're a monk and you're just sitting there thinking, meditating, well, you're meditating thoughts will, your brain's going to be working. So what are you meditating on? That's your work. You know, what's, what's informing your work. And it seems like, I mean, just reading the book, that's, I just kept thinking, what a rich life, you know, like it is to notice all these things and to kind of like you have, uh, I really appreciate the fact that you've kind of made note of these different, like really impactful moments in your life and you have such clarity about describing them and kind of seeing how they affected you. Well, listen, I've had a pretty bizarre life, you know, it's, I mean, it, it doesn't look that bizarre, but if looking back, you know, and I, I go, yeah, whatever, you know, yeah, you know, there I was opening for Stevie Nicks. Like, wow. Like how many people can say that? I've done the Tonight Show twice. That's not, I'm not the biggest, most successful artist, but I mean, have you? Yeah. Yeah. No. Have you done it? Okay. <laughs> no. So it's like, and, and, you know, so and I've been around these crazy people. I wrote songs with the guy that wrote Wild Thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like these, I wrote songs at the Belmont Raceway in New York. It's like, who does that? You know? And so I just, and I met some really interesting people and I've had, I've had a lot, even my, you know, my father was a, uh, just a, like a, he ran savings and loans in Texas, you know, so it's like, and then he worked in mortgage insurance. So not like, it doesn't look like that bizarre life, but I met some really interesting characters through just through my father, you know, and my uncles and stuff. They're interesting people. They're characters. 
And I come from Texas, where Texans, they love their bullshit, you know. So I love characters. I love people. And I also learned early on that being a musician, I think I fell in love with the lifestyle and the people around music more than I loved adulation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, the adulation, is, that's cool. But the people you meet are just awesome. It's amazing. You know, they're characters, man. So I started really paying attention to the life that I got to lead. I got the opportunity to lead this life by being a musician. And I did have a certain amount of, once again, I had some success, which put me in sort of a, a certain opportunity crowd. I got to work with really interesting people. But I found that they were really funny. And they had lessons that I didn't have. And, and you were I, paying attention. I was paying attention. And I got, I got these secret messages. Before I was ever like going, ooh, wow, secret message. I just remember these. I never had a mentor. This is the other key thing. Growing up, I never had a mentor. So as a, as a young musician, I didn't, know, I didn't know any musicians. And so a large part of my adult life, especially in the art world, the arts, you know, music arts, was seeking out mentors. Seeking out people that were older than me who had been there. And this wasn't only art people, but, but uh, there's a couple of key uh, business people, mm. music, music business people. One, the book is dedicated to a guy named Nigel Grange, who was a record guy, he was an A&R guy. He signed, like, he signed Steve Miller. He signed 10CC. He was English. Uh, he signed me to a record deal with my friend Boo Hewardine. He signed The Water Boys, World Party, Sinead O'Connor, Boomtown Rats. Uh, he talked Rod Stewart into putting Maggie May on the A side instead of the B side. It's like he goes way back. And he was just on fire. He was just on fire his entire life. And he had a massive impact on me. And he was a business. He was a music he was a music guy, but he was a music business guy. You know, and a couple of managers I had were just these amazing people. They weren't musicians. And they just changed my life. And uh I was really lucky. And I got I got to be around that and, and that just showed me that, that being awake to the people that you're around. I mean, I had it happen to me you know, three weeks ago. A guy like gave me this piece of information mm. that was has nothing to do with music. It has to do with living. And he's not a he is a musician. He's not a professional musician, but he's a great jazz guitar player. He's an advertising guy. <laughs> yeah. But he gave me a piece of information. And that piece of information is it's not the whole story, but it's what I needed to know right then. And it changed me. Mm. I could feel it changed me. It changed my thinking. So I think it's I think that's part of the attention that you have to pay. It's who your friends are, what you're doing, what the input is, and the people that you're around. And allowing that information to come in, knowing that you don't know everything. Yeah, just being open to everyone. And like you said, with the soldier, like not assuming the difference, but being open to the connection and yeah. learning something. Well, I mean, you know, it. it's like I'm many soldiers. I've had a lot of instances where these soldiers have, that I've worked with, I mean, I never thought I'd hang out with soldiers. Vets, guys who've done some pretty crazy things, yeah. you know, military wise. These guys are my friends. You know, I love these people. And I never thought I'd do that. And they have changed me. It made me a better artist, hmm. which is interesting. You know, it's like people who aren't artists. How could they make you a better artist? They can, hmm. if you're awake. I really feel like after doing this podcast for a year that I feel changed. 
yeah. just talking to a different person every week, listening intently, looking into them, trying to understand who they are, hearing what they have to say. They're sharing about their lives. I do. I've, I really feel changed. So I, I can. I got. I, I have a. I have a glimpse of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I've lived my whole life that way, but I. I can see how rich that is and powerful. Yeah. Well, I think that we all have the opportunity to put ourselves... I mean, I'm fascinated with people. You know, people fascinate. That's where my songs come from, these things I hear. And um, But people are funny. I think they're funny. You know, and they're weird. They're funny. They're bizarre. Uh, and they do interesting things. And so I want to hear about them. I want to hear, and I want to go to dinner with you. You know, it's like, I'm gonna, you're interesting. But let's go to dinner. Let's talk. Let's figure it out. They're, make me laugh. Can you make me laugh? <laughs> if you can make me laugh, I'll probably be your buddy. Yeah. You know? It's like it's kind of... So, uh, I just think that the world is full of interesting people, and they're not all musicians and artists. I love musicians and artists, but I love there's a lot of people I love most are not that, and so that's um, that. It's it never gets dull. Yeah, could you speak to uh, Warren Zane's intro to your book? Because I really <laughs> yeah. love his whole thing about just yeah. Getting lost. Yeah, Warren Zane. That the the he sent me. The, I I made him title it Tiddlywink. So the, the <laughs> it was called he it was called the forward when he sent it to me. Yeah. And and I went Warren, we have to call this Tiddlywinks, simply because I wanted I, the idea that having a book that I'd made written spent all this time with the forward was called Tiddlywinks just made me laugh. <laughs> but um, you know, I met Warren in the you know when he was. Uh, in Del Fuego's, you know, and I was on, um, I was, I was doing my own thing and up, up in Boston. I think we did a gig together or two. And, uh, I, I just sent him the book and I said, would you write it forward? Cause he'd written that amazing Tom Petty biography that came out mm. a few years ago. I mean, really it's an amazing book. And I, I remember writing him then just going, Warren, this is really an incredible piece of writing, you know, but I just, I had no idea he would do a forward for me. And he said, yes. And, so I've seen the book, and, and his forward is on the power of not knowing and how Tiddlywinks, you know, in RBQ, the great story is that those guys were, the myth is that they were all, you know, these kids that were just doing glue and, you know, sniffing glue and going and making records. And if you listen to Tiddlywinks, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's this quality of a bunch of kids who were left in the studio too long, and they just got really weird. And yeah. they were doing things that don't make sense, and they doing things no one had ever done kind of done it but that way and these really great songs and but the drums are weird and the singing's weird and the the guitars are not where you think they should be and uh it works thank god they didn't know what they were doing because if they'd known exactly what they were doing they wouldn't have had the freedom to go make the mistakes like i'm glad that i never i i, I don't I, i'm glad i don't know how to read music i love working with people who know how to read music because it's very it's like it's key you know but I personally don't need it because hey, I know how I know these other people that do read music, but also I don't want to know what the rules are. That way I can go break them and not get all whacked out about breaking the rules. Well, that's how you started out. Yeah. I mean, the I did first part of your I life didn't know. writing songs. I know I did. I taught myself to write songs by rewriting Guy Clark songs and just putting and John Prine songs and, and, and all those songs on Jerry Jeff Walker records and Michael Murphy records and those John Prine records I put nouns where their nouns were and verbs where their verbs were and I learned how they felt exact same rhythm same melodies I just learned how it felt I didn't know and uh, so by not knowing what the rules are and keeping yourself in that innocent phase it allows you to do something new it's like I don't know how to write a book I don't know how to write a symphony I did it. 
I don't I don't know if the symphony was any good or not, but we did it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it also establishes this, uh, the, what Warren nailed in the forward is the beauty of that, and the beauty of not uh, the beauty of marrying up a craft with this ability to not know and let yourself go. He nailed it, and I think there's a real. There's a, I didn't see that forward coming. I didn't know what the forward was going to yeah, be, but I didn't yeah. know that one was coming. And he told me, he goes, I'm going to send it to you right at deadline, which means you're not going to be able oh, to rewrite damn. it. You can't rewrite it. <laughs> There's not enough time to rewrite it. That's what it is, which was really smart of him. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's an amazing, amazing bit of wisdom for us all to remember is that knowing everything isn't the key. The key is to not know. Have craft, have skill, but don't you don't have to know everything. There's a few things yeah, man. in your book that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things. Actually, what I would, what frustrated me most is because I wanted to talk about almost every story in the book because they <laughs> all said something to me. They all made me feel a certain way. And it was just like, I can't share all this. I feel like people should just get the book. No, I, I, mean, I really think you. they I should like, you. have the book yeah. in hand and listen to you read it i think that, well there's that's an audio there's an audio book you can get. yeah yeah oh, right that's good but that i looked at the I, I looked at it on my computer and listened to it and it was it was very powerful but um the audio book was a blast to make we scored scored the whole thing yeah it's beautiful great. yeah thank you it's beautiful with songs mixed in yeah you know fall in love with what you do it's infectious i love that line. yeah well when you fall in love with something you do other people are able to fall in love with it as well and treat it like a lover. Treat your art like a lover. People want to be around love. They do. They want to be around people that love what they do. That's what is attractive. That's what comes through in great paintings, great art. Is that the person loved what they were painting or hated it enough to love it. Hated it enough to, you know, make something beautiful or cool or whatever out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what is infectious. The one, I'd say the piece in the book that moved me the most was Everything. Oh, the um, song, Everything, yeah, yeah. 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 I figured it was a song, but you didn't Yeah, it was originally, it, it was a song, yeah. yeah. It was a song called Everything, yeah. I don't need to hold it. That's not the way to live. I just want to have it all so I can give it all away. Like, right. that is so beautiful. Thank you. Uh, to me, that song was um, the essence of just grabbing what's there in your mind and getting out of the way. That song, I wrote that song in like 20 minutes, you know, mm. um, and uh, literally... The second verse is, uh, you know, hawk upon the wing, horses on the run, wave upon the ocean, my daughter and my son. And when I'm still aching after all of this, I want my love to take me with a kiss. And I was on a friend of mine's horse farm in western Colorado, and i just come back from Hawaii, and i just spoken with my kids on the phone, you know, it's just like hawk upon, and I look up and there's a hawk, you know, hawk upon the wing. I look out the window, horses on the run, you know, I just come back from Hawaii, wave upon the ocean, my daughter and my son. I was in love with a woman. It's like when I'm still aching after all of this, I want my love to take me with a kiss. It's like just pulling from your life. Mm. And this belief that as opposed to separating myself and I only want part of my life. As, you know, I'm in my 50s. I'm a 56 now, you know. It's like it's like I want, I, I kind of embrace the, like from soldiers, I mean, they, there's a phrase, embrace the suck. Embrace the part that's bad. The beauty's on the other side of that. But embrace this, because it's not going to change. And if you don't embrace it, it'll kill you. Hmm. So embrace it. 
which is cool as an artist. Embrace, you know, like life. Embrace it. Here we go. That's all that, you know, who said oh, it was going to be easy? No one said life was going to be easy. Never. So just get used to it. But if you're one of these people who happens to be sort of a creative, you know, worker, that's your medium. Go for it. But don't shut yourself off from the bad part. Take everything, everything in and use it. It's all there. It's raw material. Yeah, like you say at the end, open up, step out into the wind. You're here for a reason. We're counting on you. Yeah, I think that the world is counting on us. So open up, step out in the wind. I mean, it's like um, when I think about that, it's like it's even like it's. I get emotional when I hear it, when I, I think about that, because it was not the way I was raised. I had to learn how to do this. I wasn't I wasn't natural at it. Like I said, I mean, at one point, the, the, the story of the teasers, you know, I quit drawing when I was 10. And didn't because I didn't want people to tease me about my drawings, and I didn't start drawing until again until I was thirty, and then even then I kept it secret for fifteen years that I did this thing. Mm. I just carried these notebooks around and drew, and then closed the notebooks and didn't tell anybody, didn't show anybody nothing, except for my kids. Always made handmade handmade cards for my kids. We have boxes of them at home, you know. But now I see the value of opening up and stepping out there, going for it. Uh, it's what's kept me going all these years, but I think also the, I, I mean, you never know you, I don't think, well, I, I know that we, we can't control who we're going to affect. We can only control what we do uh, as a musician and someone who does that. God, I don't know who's going to listen. You never can't tell. And you have no control over that. I got a letter a couple of months ago from a woman. She's in Germany, but she's from Colombia. And her husband is from Iran. They met at a refugee center in Berlin. Hmm. And they heard a song of mine on German TV. And they used it in their wedding. Now, what are the odds? Hmm. That's bizarre. I have no control over who hears the songs. All I have control over is the making and the distribution in some way. Had I not, they still would have probably gotten married. But the day wouldn't have been what it was had I not noticed this thing I wrote the song in 2000 had I not noticed it then and taken the time to write this song put it on a record had to go out there enough to get on a TV show in Germany which I didn't even know about their day wouldn't have been so it moved them thank God I wrote the song yeah so it's up to me to do that that's my job it's my responsibility without getting all high and mighty about it it's like it is my responsibility what is your just as a final question like what is your hope for this book, if anything, the book, um, find the people that need to see, see it, you know, sell enough to sell enough to break even, but, uh, yeah. And then maybe, you know, do all that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, you know, um, just to have it out there. I I love it. You know, I might write another book someday. You never know. Yeah. The hope for the book is for it to do what it needs to do and, uh, get out there. It's a, it's great fun touring the book. Cause Mm. I go out and do the gigs where it's around the book. Yeah, using songs and stories, and so that's fun, you know. Yeah. So there's talk about making it into a show and all this kind of thing, which it could be. And uh, so yeah, just keep working at it, you know. Yeah, I love the book, and I really encourage anyone to check it out. And where would you like people to kind of learn more about you or connect? Yeah, with they you? can go to dardensmith.com and and uh, more information than you would possibly ever want to know. <laughs> and and uh, if you want to know more about songwriting with soldiers, you can go to songwritingwithsoldiers.org and then uh, you can get the book on my website or, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble or 
you know your local bookstore or whatever that is yeah well thank you so much for your time I my really pleasure appreciate thank it. you Scott alright bye bye thanks for listening one more thing before you go if this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Take care.